The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. I haven't always been a Marvel movie guy, okay? Um, the, the superheroes, Captain America and, uh, you know, Iron Man and, and those sorts of guys. In fact, when, when the last big one came out, which I don't think it was the last big one anymore, but the, when the last big one that I'm referring to came out, it was called Endgame. Uh, we, we went to it on an elders retreat. And uh, while, while we're there, we're, you know, it's like a 17-hour movie or something like that. And, and we're, we're there. I fell asleep. Okay, I'm just bored out of my mind. I, I fell asleep. And then I wake up at one point, and, and Pastor Craig is crying. Okay, And uh, Ben and, and Adam, they're like on the edge of their seat. And I'm just trying to figure out what in the world is, is going on. Because I, I had no context. Okay, I, uh, I didn't know the characters. Um, I, I didn't know the, the, the history. And to be honest with you, uh, up until that point superhero movies weren't really my genre, okay? And, and so I had all these barriers. See, there's all these barriers to me enjoying uh, the, the movies. Well, some time passed, and, you know, lo and behold, the pandemic came along. And, and, and about, you know, I don't know, a month or so into that, uh, Alyssa Store, she, she talked me into giving the, the movies another try. She was talking about them, all this sort of stuff. And she said, I was like, well, I went to Endgame. I fell asleep. And, and she goes, you can't start with Endgame. Like that, that's like the last, like you can't, you can't start there. It won't make any sense. And so she sent me this article that put all the movies in chronological order, right? And, and so she said, you got to start at the beginning. And so I go home and I ask my kids, you know, do you want to watch? I'm expecting them all to say no because I got three girls, right? And, and, uh, and they, every single one of them, including my wife, were like, yeah, let's, let's do it. We, we don't got anything else going on. It's a pandemic. And so I'm, I'm, I stand here today and I can proudly say, one of the major Bumgarner family accomplishments from the COVID-19 pandemic was that we have watched all, all of the, the Marvel movies. And I, in fact, I may have even shed a little tear uh, at, at Endgame when we watched it again. Well, listen, we, we're starting a new series this morning, um, not on the Marvel movies. You'll have to go to a different church for that. Um, we're, we're, but we're starting a series on, on the minor prophets in the, in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to be in them for the next 12 weeks, after which, Lord willing, um, we're going to start a, a series on the first three chapters of the book of Romans this fall. But as we begin this series on the minor prophets, we have to acknowledge, okay, that, that reading the, the minor prophets can be a lot like my initial experience with the Marvel movies, right? Uh, we have all kinds of barriers. Um, generally speaking, we, we don't have context, historical context, biblical context. We, we start reading them and we're like, what, what in the world is going on right now? <laughs> you know? Or maybe we fall asleep even. And if we're honest, you know, most of us, poetry isn't our biblical genre of choice for, for broad, broad, broadly speaking there. Um, it's more difficult for us to read and understand uh, we don't know the characters in, in general. Obadiah, how much do you know about Obadiah? Okay, how much do you know about Hosea? Um, nobody even names their kids Obadiah or, or Hosea, not even Christians. And so we, we, we don't know them nearly as well as we know Moses, <laughs> as we know Paul in the New Testament. And, and yet the result here, the result of all of that is that the minor prophets are typically the least read, the least understood, and therefore the least treasured of all of God's special revelation to us. And yet they're loaded with insight and help, okay? There's calls for repentance in them, warnings against our waywardness and judgment, as well as providing hope for us. 
Um, but because of the barriers, we, we typically reduce the minor prophets down to you know, a couple cursory references during Advent, tapping into a messianic prophecy when it's convenient for us. Um, but brothers and sisters, there is so much more here for us than that. You know, the, the, the minor prophets, and, and we're going to get into this this morning, but they, they ministered during a time of biblical history that was characterized by three things. Okay, number one, unprecedented political, military, economic, and social upheaval. Hmm. Uh, an incredible level of religious unfaithfulness and disregard for God's covenant. That's the second thing. Another way to say that is a, a disregard for how God desires for us to live as his people in his kingdom. The third thing that characterized this time was shifts in population and national boundaries, including displacement by war, exile, there's refugees, there's migration that's happening, right? All along, uh, also with these shifts in um, international power. Now, I'll just pause here and ask, <laughs> does any of that sound familiar? This is our world, isn't it? I mean, this is the world in which we're living right now in, in a lot of ways, and it's, it's way too familiar in some ways, isn't it? Um, Here's the good news, that the Bible has a lot to say about the sorts of things that are going on in our world today. Uh, the minor prophets, they spoke, they preached against the sins of their culture, instructing people on how to live in faithfulness and in obedience to the Lord while the whole world was fracturing. They address injustice. They talk about treatment of the poor, spiritual apathy, but believers who say nice things out of their mouths but don't walk the talk that they're talking. Simultaneously, okay, and also relevant to our world and moment, they also warn about syncretism. Amalgamating religious convictions with cultural movements in ways that are not God's ways. They do both. And through it all, they advocate for trust in the Lord. Above everything else. They, they, they warn against pursuing military power or political power or, or political alliances as the ultimate source of, of security and safety. They remind God's people that they are God's people. They, they remind God's people of his sovereign control over, over everything, over them, over their lives, over the chaotic events of their days, over the nations, over all. They are, I hope you see, extremely, extremely relevant to our current cultural moment. <laughs> but if you're like most Christians, you've tried to read them, and uh, they don't make sense. You maybe fall asleep like I do at the movies, or you've given up. You've been discouraged, or even confused. I mean, just maybe you tried to read the Minor Prophets, and you're like, I, I'm just confused. Uh, well, with this series, we want to help take down the barriers so that you can read, worship, and even submit yourself to the Word of God as revealed here in the Minor Prophets. Heed the warnings. Learn how God speaks to us today through how he's spoken uh, to his people of old. Even repent, which, which means change. Trust him, all of that. And, and to help you do that, we've, we've put together a, a reading guide um, for you, a reading plan. Hopefully you got one of these on your way in. If you didn't, they're on a stand outside that door. Grab one on the way back. There's this great timeline on the back side of it that you're going to find helpful as well. But what we're going to do is we're going to take one minor prophet a week starting next week and, and going for, for 12 more, okay? Um, it, you know, we'll put it on Realm here too. But the coming week, we want you to read Hosea. And then come next week, we'll preach on Hosea. Um, then Joel, the following week. Amos, the following week. You got the idea. We, we want all of us reading the Old Testament minor prophets. Some are longer. Some are quite short. Um, and then coming on Sundays to sit under the preaching of that 
minor prophet. Again, there's 12 of them. This will be our sermon series for the next 12 weeks. Now, th- this morning, my job is like orientation, okay? Um, I want to in- introduce you to and, and orient you to the minor prophets as a whole. I, I want to deconstruct some of the barriers that we experience when we try to read the prophets by, number one, looking at, at a little bit about uh, who the minor prophets are and uh, when they lived and ministered, okay, when and who. Uh, secondly, we'll, we'll look high level at what they're about. When, when we read the minor prophets, what, in general, are they doing, okay, and how do they do it? How, how do they say it, what and how? And then third, we'll touch a little bit more on why this is important for us. Okay, so the minor prophets, when and who, what and how, and also why. Now, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to uh, the table of contents. No joke. Open it up to the table of contents. Every Bible has one. And um, if you're a Bible-on-the-phone kind of person, this is one of the six times a year where I tell you to stop being a Bible-on-your-phone kind of person and get a physical copy of God's Word in your hand instead, okay? God's Word is, it is far too precious to be reduced down to an app on your phone next to Snapface and, and Tweetgram or whatever they're called now. And it, it's worthy, right? The Word of God is worthy of your full attention, un, unencumbered by the distractions of notifications and a text from your mom. And so if you don't own a Bible, get one out of the pews, take it with you, it's yours now. Um, but if you look at the table of contents in your Bible, okay, the first thing that you see in the table of contents in your Bible is this division, okay, b- between the Old Testament and the New. There's a division there. The, the Old Testament is everything before Jesus was born. Okay, and the New Testament tells us about his birth, you know, his, li- his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, and the beginning of his church. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, I, I just want to show you how it's built. Okay, orientation today. Um, the easiest way to remember it is in three numbers, 17, 5, and 7. The first 17 books of the Old Testament, okay, Genesis, straight down the table of contents until you get to Esther, if you're looking at it in your book, Right? These are what we would call historical books. They're, they're, they're narrative. Okay? They tell stories. They tell real stories, real accounts of God's people. They capture the storyline of the Old Testament. The next five in that table of contents are what we call the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Then, then you have 17 more, the prophets, the, the prophetic literature. And, and here's, this is, this is really important, okay? The, something really important that you need to know about reading the Old Testament is that the story of God's people is almost exclusively told in the first 17 books. Genesis through Esther. Okay, the time advances in those books. Biblical history advances through those books. The wisdom literature and the prophets then lay over the top of those books. Okay? They, they happen and they take place in and amongst the, the narrative storyline of the first 17 books of the Bible. Are you tracking with that? For example, when we get to the Minor Prophets, okay, the biblical storyline, the biblical historical setting for the Minor Prophets is found in 2 Kings 14 through the end of 2 Kings, along with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. There, there's also a parallel to the portion in 2 Kings found in 2 Chronicles 25, through the end of that book. Okay, so in addition to reading one minor prophet book a week, you might want to slowly make your way through 2 Kings 14, through the end of 2 Kings, as well as Ezra and Nehemiah, 
And then the last part of Second Chronicles, which is up there on the screen for you. Now, listen, still looking at the table of contents, right? When you get to the prophets, um, you have what we normally just call prophets, okay? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations were tossing in there too, just to keep things simple this morning. Um, then you have what we're looking at this summer called the minor prophets, which begin with Hosea, and then Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and so on, until all the way till the end of your Old Testament, right? And they're called minor prophets. If, if you ever wondered why they're called minor prophets, um, they're, they're called minor prophets not because they're less important than the major ones, okay? Uh, simply because they're shorter. In fact, ancient Judaism actually grouped the, the shorter minor prophets into one large book, which they called the Book of the Twelve. And when they did, it was in length right in the middle of the other prophets in terms of length. And I say that to say that historically, and for the people of the Old Testament, these prophets were not minor, as we typically think of minor. They were just as major as any other book of the, of the scriptures, right? That They were a major deal for them. They're to be a major deal for us. Now, in order to place the minor prophets and understand the when, we need to do two things this morning. And it's a, it's a daunting task, and I hope you're up for it. But first, we need to understand where they fall in the broad sense of biblical history. And then we need to zoom in a little and understand some things about the specific historical context of the minor prophets themselves. So the Bible, of course, begins in Genesis, with God creating everything from nothing, including Adam and Eve. Everything was good, very good, in fact. However, it didn't stay good. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of Satan appearing to Adam and Eve in, Adam and Eve in the form of the serpent. Right? Adam and Eve sinned. They bring sin into the world. It all unraveled from there. And yet, even in the very early stages of biblical history, God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, he made a promise to crush the head of the serpent. And as you continue to read in Genesis, we meet God's people through Noah. Eventually, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those are known as the patriarchs. God makes a promise to Abraham around the year 2000 BC, a covenant with Abraham, declaring Abraham and his offspring to be the ones through whom he would bring blessing to all the nations. He also promises to make their, their name great, make, make Abraham's name great, give him tons of kids and grandkids, and this promised land that we read of in the scriptures. And this promise that he makes to Abraham, it's passed down through Abraham's son Isaac, eventually Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob had 13 sons, okay, the second to the youngest being Joseph. Joseph didn't have nice brothers, did he? No, jo Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt where he goes and he lives and he rises in power into a position where he is well positioned when the famine breaks out in the land and all of Israel ends up down in Egypt. That gets us up to the beginning of Exodus, which you might remember from the last couple of years, where God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. And God raises up Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt around the year 1446 B.C. Okay, eventually, God makes another covenant with his covenant people. We call this the law or the Mosaic covenant. God's people wander around in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Okay, now turn, turn over in your Bibles to, to Deuteronomy 30, actually. This is, um, this is where Brad just read a little bit ago. This is really important to us seeing and understanding the prophets, actually. In, in Deuteronomy 30, God's people, led by Moses, they're, they're nearing the promised land. Right, the land that was promised to Abraham, then on to Isaac and Jacob and all the way down. Right, They're ready to pass over the Jordan into the land. When God says this to the people in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, 
If you obey, listen to this, if you obey, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. So there's an if-then there, right? But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have sent before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. He, he's calling them, see? Moses is calling the people to covenant faithfulness. To live as God's covenant people, keeping the covenant, promising blessing if they do, curses if they don't. Well, if you keep tracking in biblical history, Moses dies. Because everybody dies, right? Moses dies in 1406 B.C. Joshua takes over. He leads them into the promised land. There's the conquest. You can read about that in Joshua, the taking of the land that we read there. Then they settle into the land around 1400 B.C. Once settled, we enter the time period of, of the Judges, another book of your Bible, right? Where, where, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Also sounds like our world today. That doesn't go very well for the people of God. It never goes well for people. And eventually they said, we'd like to have a king like everybody else has a king. And so they get one. The first one's Saul. He proves to be a horrible king. You can read about him in First and Second Samuel. David then replaces him as king and rules and reigns in incredible ways. David, though he commits horrible sins himself, he also models what it means for us to repent and therefore is described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. As king, he brings, David brings peace and stability to the people of God and the land of God. Later, of course, he dies too. That's in 970 B.C. His son Solomon takes over the throne. The temple is built, and everything seems to be going reasonably well until the end of Solomon's life, where we read in 1 Kings chapter 11 that he had 700 wives. That's a problem. 700 wives weren't enough, so he had 300 concubines as well. And many of them were not Israelites. And they turned King Solomon's heart away to other gods. 1 Kings 11.4 says that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes his place. And this is the point in 1 Kings 12 where the kingdom is divided. Right, in the year 931 B.C., God's people suffered a horrible division. One nation split into two. <laughs> There's division. With Israel to the north, whose capital city was Samaria. Judah to the south, whose capital city was Jerusalem. And if you continue to read in First and Second Kings, you read a century worth of struggles for God's people. Both in the northern kingdom of Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah. And that continues right up to the time of the minor prophets. The first, chronologically, was Jonah who lived and ministered during the reign of King Jeroboam II, according to 2 Kings 14, placing him around the mid-8th century B.C., or more precisely, 782 to 753. So the stage is set. The stage is now set 
for us to meet the minor prophets. You hanging in there? You didn't, you didn't realize this morning. You're like, Memorial Day weekend? Are we doing a history lesson this morning? What's going on here? Um, here here's where we are. We're, we're mid-8th century B.C. The kingdom is divided. It's been that way for nearly 100 years. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah have rattled their way through an assortment of kings. Besha, Omri, Ahab, Joram, and Jehu to the north. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Athaliah, and Joash to the south. Some good, most bad. It's a time, again, of extreme political and, and military and social upheaval. It's a time of covenant unfaithfulness on the part of God's people, or at the very least, inconsistent covenant faithfulness. Like they can't seem to get it figured out. It's a time of the prophets who come and speak God's word to God's people, calling them back to God, calling them to live faithfully in accordance with his law, with his covenant, promising blessing if they do, Deuteronomy 30, cursings if they don't. Now, here's where we zoom in a little bit on our biblical history. Okay, We get a little bit narrower focus. The time of the Minor Prophets spans roughly 350 years from 785 B.C. to about 430 B.C. And these 350 years can be broken down into three major time periods. The Assyrian time period, the Babylonian time period, and the Persian time period. In the years leading up to the year 722 B.C., Assyria is, is rising as this political and military superpower. Nineveh was her capital city. If that sounds familiar, it's from Jonah, isn't it? And there's all kinds of pressure on God's people, especially the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, three of our minor prophets, they prophesied during this time in the northern kingdom. Micah also prophesies during this time, but unlike the others, he prophesies both in, in Israel and in Judah. Now, turning your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17, to the right, just a little bit here. Because in 722 BC, the Assyrians attack and conquer Samaria, okay, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It falls. And in 2 Kings 17, it's on page 323 in my Bible, it tells us about that. Look at 2 Kings 17, verses 6 and following. It says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala, and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred, why did it occur? Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They did secretly against the Lord things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. He warned them by every prophet 
and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah. Now listen, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, they were the ones referenced in verse 13 who said, Turn back. They don't turn back, and God raises up Assyria to take down Israel. Okay, and this leads us then into the Babylonian time period. That was the Assyrian time period. Now we're in the Babylonian time period. There's just Judah now, remember? Assyria has become the powerhouse in the region. Nineveh is their powerhouse city, one of the greatest cities of the world at that time. But in the years leading up to 586 B.C., the Babylonians are rising in power. And in 612, Nineveh falls to the Babylonians under the reign of Nabopolassar. If that name sounds familiar, it's, it's almost like his son's name who became king, Nebuchadnezzar, who we meet in 2 Kings 24. Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, they all prophesied during this time until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians attack Jerusalem, destroy the city, destroy the temple, carry off God's people of Judah into exile. That begins the period of the exile. God's people now have been removed from God's land. And of course, maybe you know, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, they all prophesied during this time. Also during this time, another power shift happens in the region with the Persians now rising to power. So you had the Assyrians, and then you had the Babylonians who conquered the Assyrians. Now you've got the Persians who are rising up, and they're going to conquer the Babylonians. And they do so in 539 under King Cyrus II. And in 538... Cyrus issues, King Cyrus of Persia issues an emancipation decree. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1. Paving the way for the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and reestablish themselves as God's people in God's land, worshiping God. Here's where we meet Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and possibly Joel. We're not completely sure about Joel. He's a hard one to know exactly when he ministered. We'll look at more of that in a couple weeks. But listen, why spend so much time on this? I mean, are you feeling a little bit like I did at, at the movie? You're like nodding off a little bit. Sunday morning's kind of early, your first service. Why, why spend so much time on this? Well, well, to give you a biblical history, okay? This is our book. This is our story. We need a biblical history. But, but also, I want to show you that the minor prophets speak in large measure directly to these events, to these time periods and these power shifts. And if, if you don't know about these events, if you don't know the history, making sense out of the minor prophets is going to be really hard. Listen, God spoke in history 
about history. That is really important. It's really important not just so that we get the details right, but it's also important as we seek to learn what God is saying to us through what he has said to them. We've got to get this down. And you might be saying, goodness, Todd, that seems like a lot of hard work. <laughs> to which I would say, you know, if you know the name of a Husker football recruit who hasn't yet graduated high school, hmm? If you know Chip and Joanna's last name in hometown, okay? If you know the name of more than one 14er in Colorado, if you've taken the time to train and to climb more than one 14er in Colorado, if you can name more than three of the Guardians of the Galaxies, you can learn this too. You have Google, you got Wikipedia, you might even have a study Bible. Most of the names in the cities and the kingdoms and the rulers here, you just type them into Wikipedia. It comes up. There's something you might seriously consider doing as you read. Like this is, this is real history that we're talking about here this morning. This isn't folklore. You can look it all up. You can read about it. It's not made up. It's biblical. It's, it's historical. We serve a real God who has acted in the real world, in real time, in real space. He has done real things. And you can learn this too. You just have to want to. And the reason that you should want to is because you want to hear from God himself. To hear what he's actually said. You know, we can't just take God's word and, and make it say what we want it to say. That's really easy to do, by the way, with the minor prophets. No, we have to do a little hard work to understand what he said, when he said it, to whom he said it to, and why? It's only from there that we can learn what he says to us through it. That's when and who. And the minor prophets ministered for a roughly 350 time period from the mid-8th century to the 5th century B.C. They were, in chronological order, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Again, we're not sure where Joel falls. <laughs> That's the chronological order. It's not the canonical order, which is the order that we have them in our Bibles. In our Bibles, Hosea comes first, doesn't he? Then Joel, then Amos. It's different from chronological, and we call it canonical, right? Because the books of the Bible are sometimes referred to as the canon of Scripture, if you're not familiar with that term. And while we'll preach in canonical order, the order that they appear in your Bible, it's extremely important for us to understand something of their chronological order, too. We need to know both when and who. Now let's move on to what and how. What, what's the message of the book of the 12? What in broad sweeping strokes are the minor prophets about? Well, listen, in broad sweeping strokes, the minor prophets are about judgment, repentance, and hope. Judgment upon God's people. Upon other nations too, but judgment upon God's people. It's coming unless you turn back, the prophets say. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. And therefore repent and return to the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, Joel says. 
And if you will, for those who will, hope abounds. Hope is promised. Restoration. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Judgment, repentance, and hope. See, the prophets... One of the things, one of the primary things they do is call God's people to be faithful to God's covenant. There's really not nothing, there's really not anything new that they bring besides how they say it. Okay, that means they're not, they're not social justice innovators. There's really nothing novel about their condemnation of idolatry. They're just saying, obey God and return to him. Follow him. His ways are better. But keep his law. His, his law is good. Sweeter than honey, finer than gold. Remember the, the Psalms say the same thing. Trust him. I know the whole damn world is falling apart around you, but trust in him. Don't give in. Don't turn aside. Don't worship other gods. There is no God but him. Don't trust another king. God will deliver you. Be faithful. Be faithful to his covenant. The minor prophets, you see, in one sense, they're like covenant prosecuting attorneys. Okay, remember Deuteronomy 30? If you obey, blessing. If you don't, cursing. Well, the minor prophets come along and they say, here's the covenant, here's the promise blessing if you keep it, here's the promise curse if you don't. It's all here. They present the case like an attorney, Israel or Judah. They're, they're the defendant on trial. And the prophets bring the evidence. They build the case. They bring down the verdict and everything. The the clear verdict comes. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Well, if that's what they do, if that's what they say, how do they say it? Well, but largely in poetry, which is hard for most of us, hard for me, um, but it's also beautiful. Think about what poetry does. It, it helps us to think about the same old things in new ways, doesn't it? It adds color. Poetry enlivens our imagination. The, the prophets function like that. They, they say things in ways God's people hadn't heard them said before, in ways that we haven't heard them said before. Again, they're not saying anything new, but it's new the way they're saying it. It's supposed to get their attention and ours. It was also more easy for them to remember. We don't think of it that way because we live in a written culture or a video culture or a TikTok culture, and theirs, though, was an oratory culture. Poetry was more easy to remember than prose. It still is, isn't it? I mean, think about how many lyrics to songs that you know and stack that up against the Bible verses that you have memorized. (laughs) Gotcha, right? They write largely in poetry, using, for example, metaphor, getting our attention, drawing us in. 
Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You see what Amos is doing here? He's, he's shaking them out of their stupor. His words were to be like a bucket of ice water poured over a bleary-eyed people. It's metaphor. There's also laments. There's woe oracles on the surrounding nations and God's people too. They also use hyperbole, a deliberate exaggeration to highlight a point. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. And the rubble with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. There's hyperbole here, friends. And this is really important to understand because it leads us to our need to understand the difference between two really important things, foretelling and forthtelling. When we think about prophecy, we typically think of foretelling, in other words, predicting the future. But the main task of the prophet wasn't foretelling, it was forthtelling, which is more like preaching. Like they spoke and they proclaimed, they preached God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's forthtelling. And the difference is crucial. Because if we approach the minor prophets primarily as literal foretelling instead of primarily forthtelling, we'll read something like Zephaniah 1 and we'll say, God hasn't done that yet. He hasn't consumed all the earth yet with fire and of his jealousy. He hasn't made a full and sudden end to all the inhabitants of the earth. And therefore, we'll, we'll take the book of Zephaniah and we'll hold it up like a secret decoder ring to the world's current events. And there are ripoffs and hack jobs of so-called ministers out there that do that right now in the name of Jesus. And it's an utter desecration to the word of God. Trying to get rich and make a name for themselves as if God's word was a, a toy for them to wield and play with for their own fame and their own name. Ironically, the prophets have quite a word for precisely them. Woe to you. Now listen, don't hear me wrong because the prophets do talk of the future. Okay, but it's usually their immediate future, not ours. <laughs> Our job is to look back on times that for them were still future and to understand the words of the prophets in those ways. Now, is that 100% true in every case? No, there's messianic prophecies in there. Okay, the ones we referenced during Advent, but those are, they're actually few and far between. Probably something like 2% of what all the prophets have to say are messianic prophecies. Additionally, there are some passages like Joel 2 that Peter references in Acts 2 at Pentecost saying the time has come, this is now fulfilled. 
Right? Sometimes there's, an even, there's even an immediate fulfillment in the Old Testament and a future and fuller fulfillment that awaits, but those are few and far between. By and large, the prophets are speaking to their future, not ours 2,500 years later. So we've looked a little about when and who. We've looked at what and how. Lastly then, why? Why should we study the minor prophets? Well, first... Because it's God's word. You know, if, if someone discovered another book of the Bible that we had never seen before, I'm not saying this is, this is possible because I, I don't think it is, right? But if, if, let's just say for a moment that somebody discovered 3 Corinthians. Hmm? Or, or 2 Romans. How good would that be? I mean, like we would pour over that, wouldn't we? We would go gangbusters over that. We would want to know all kinds of stuff about it. Well, the very reality is that the minor prophets are functionally equivalent to that for most Christians. God's word is here. We hardly ever read it. Even if we have, we don't understand it. And yet here it is for us to pour over. Why study the minor prophets? Because it's God's word. Secondly, a a second reason to study the minor prophets is because they focus on the weightiness of God. God, it would seem, is on a weight loss program in our day and age. You know, I don't know if it's Whole30 or Keto or what he's up to, but it seems to, be, seems to be working. Our world, even some of us as Christians, we are in danger of losing the weightiness of God. The significance of God, the sovereignty and immensity of God in our life and world. And we see it in several ways. You know, the, the news would seem to have more of a shaping influence on how we live our lives rather than the good news. We are being catechized by our culture. Current events seem weightier than God. Panic, fear, anxiousness, restlessness seem to be gaining the weight that God is shedding in our lives and in our worlds. And the prophets call us back from that. They call us back from the little G gods in our lives and they call us out of the spiritual lethargy in our lives, convict us of just how insignificant God has become in our lives and they restore his immensity. I love how scholars Fewer and Yates say it in their book on the minor prophets. They say the the minor prophets, the prophets remind us that, that God cannot be pushed to the margins of our lives and trivialized or manipulated into fulfilling our personal agendas. The prophets restore a vision of God's immensity and challenge us to worship and revere him above all else. In the prophets, we come face to face with the the weighty, immense, non-trivial sovereignty of God. He is sovereign over his people. And not just his people, he is sovereign over all people, everywhere. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He uses everything for his kingdom purposes, and his kingdom purposes will not be thwarted. He will not be trivialized. He must be reckoned with. Why study the minor prophets? Because they are the word of God. Because God is is to be weighty in our life. Thirdly, because God is faithful to his covenant. 
A theme that is inherently here is not just God calling his people to be faithful to his covenant. In the prophets, we see God himself being faithful to his covenant. Faithful to execute his blessings to obedience. Faithful to execute his curses for disobedience. If you happen to, to be here and, or know a non-Christian, like this is exactly who non-Christians want God to be. They're tired of hypocritical Christians. The prophets tell us God is too. God will not bless disobedience. Not back then, not now. He won't. And so if you're here and you're living in sin and calling yourself a Christian, God doesn't stand for it. He calls you out today with the same message that he called out his people 25 years ago. Judgment is real. You're not fooling anyone. You are especially not fooling him. Repent. On this side of the cross, that means trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Change. There is hope for you. But do not be fooled because God will not be fooled. He will not bless your disobedience. You know, we talk a lot about grace. You're like, well, what, what, what happened about grace? Grace, right? When we talk about grace all the time, and there is grace. God is gracious to forgive our sins, isn't he? But brothers and sisters, sin as believers, even as believers, is not without consequences. So turn back, God says. Return to me. You're, you're, you're missing out on blessings. You're wreaking havoc and curses in your life and you might not even realize it anymore because it's become normal. Return to me, he says. Oh, sure, he is gentle and lowly, absolutely. He is also holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, which means he isn't ignoring your ignoring of loving your neighbor. He isn't indifferent to your indifference about justice. He isn't tolerant of your unbiblical tolerance of sin. He's God. He's holy. He speaks, we obey. He leads, we follow. He calls sin, sin, and we repent. This is what it means to call him Lord. And he's also faithful to his covenant in another way. He's faithful to his covenant people. And this is so hard for us, right? Because we think completely, almost completely in terms of the individual. And the right now, but God's covenant faithfulness is to his people. It spans centuries. He will not forsake his people, not ultimately. No, through this time of the storyline of the Bible, we see God pursuing his people, holding them accountable, yes, but we also see his mercy, his forgiveness, his restoration. We see him rising up and, and even using foreign entities to strike down and carry off his disobedient people into exile. And yet even through that, he is working to display his love. If you're here and you're a Christian, man, God loves you and he is committed to you. He has promised to never leave you and forsake you, but he will not bless your disobedience. And he will use all kinds of stuff in this world and in your life to bring about his purposes through you. And that is weighty, isn't it? That's kind of the point. 
Because the final reason why to study the minor prophets is that they point to Jesus. <laughs> you know, the minor prophets tell a story that longs for an ending. It's an ending that we don't get in the Old Testament. In fact, all, after the minor prophets, God goes silent for 400 years. Can you imagine? They've returned from exile. You know, they, they've, they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the city, but God is silent. In fact, as you read Malachi, for example... Perhaps the last minor prophet, chronologically speaking. Do you know what you find? You find that God's people still don't have it figured out. <laughs> They're still struggling to keep covenant and worship him properly. Malachi calls out the priests for using injured animals in their sacrifices, giving God the leftovers. Nobody else wants. You know, give them to God. Paying more respect, listen to this, paying more respect to their Persian governor than to their Lord Yahweh. Even at the end of the Minor Prophets, there's a longing. Even after hearing the warnings, experiencing the judgment, even after repenting and returning to the Lord and being restored in their land, their hope is mixed with disappointment. It's hope and, and unrealized hope at the same time. You see, the grand story of the Old Testament communicates to us, no one is faithful. No one is righteous, no, not one, which means no one can perfectly lead God's people into faithfulness. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. None of his sons or grandsons did it. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua didn't do it. None of the, certainly none of the judges did it. Not, not, not in a consistent way that lasted. None of the priests did it. King David couldn't do it. None of the kings could do it. None of the major prophets, none of the minor prophets, not the major calamities, no changing of political powers and social upheaval and exile and restoration. None of it could do it. And so when we get to the end of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we're left longing for one who would do it. And then God goes silent. After Malachi, there's a blank page in my Bible. I always think of that blank page as the, the blank page representing the 400 years of silence until the priest Zechariah, husband to Elizabeth, father of John the Baptist, gets filled with the Holy Spirit, opens his mouth and says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Church, Jesus came to keep the law and fulfill the covenant on our behalf. He lived the perfect life. He was faithful to the covenant in our place. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.